Today's reading is from Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Word of the Lord. Thank you for God. Thank you for that Kids are invited to Kids Church in Missouri. Thank you, Susan, for teaching today. This is our third Sunday in the Book of Luke that we'll be walking through all the way until Easter. And I, I keep meaning to explain, but we have these four images up here that Chris has made for us, and they're actually images that the church has assigned to each of the gospel writers that comes from the book of Revelation and the book of Ezekiel, I believe. I meant to memorize that. Uh, the first one is Matthew, which is, is just a man, and it's because of tradition has invented different reasons for these over time, but the, the most obvious is because it begins with that genealogy, um, the second is Luke, which is the sacrificial ox. And it's because of the way in which Luke sort of begins with that sacrifice, and this is played out. The third is the lion, um, which is Mark. Um, and that has to do with uh, sort of the speed and the pace of his gospel. And the last is the eagle, which is John, which we walked through last year, which is there was this ancient thought that the eagle was the only one that could soar up to the highest heights among the sun. And so John has this way of sort of being from the heights of sort of Christology and preserving for us who Jesus is. And so we sort of hang that up every year to sort of remind us of sort of this relationship between the four and the one. We walk through one gospel every year, but there are four of them as well, and how they've been preserved for us and what they point out. And so this Sunday, we return to the sacrificial bull, the, the, the one that is slain. As, as part of our gospel. We heard the story that Jamie read for us about Jesus gathering people together. Now, David um, left us off last week with the story of the first sort of healing in the gospel of Luke that's preserved for us. That great image of the 10,000-pound bear, if you were not here, was it 10,000 pounds? No. Josh, how big was the bear? Which bear? The Jesus bear or the other bear? The Jesus bear. Let's go 7,500 pounds. I was going to say, how'd you pick the number for that? Because you could have just added up and up and up. Uh, and if that means nothing to you, then you can listen to the sermon online and find out what that means. But this idea that God is with us and confronting these things. And what Luke's gospel does from there is it begins with this call of, of Peter and these fishermen, and then it moves forward through a couple more healings and controversies. And it gets to this point in the gospel where he calls Levi, or the gospel of Matthew will call Matthew. Um, the story of this tax collector. Now, this is uh, one of the most famous paintings of this scene. Um, Carla, will you pronounce the name correctly for me? Do you know it? Caravaggio? Caravaggio. Caravaggio. Um, this is uh, from Caravaggio. 
Um, and on the right, apparently the actual painting is huge, but on the right you have Jesus uh, where the light sort of touches the head, and he is pointing out to the tax collectors and calling Matthew. And there's some argument on which one is Matthew. Is it the guy who's depressed because my time has come? Or is he depressed before that? Or is it the guy sort of pointing at himself saying, what do you mean me? Don't you mean somebody else? Um, and I think both of these, uh, the ambiguity of this is good for us to sort of see in the scene that, that there's this tax collector here and Jesus comes and he says, you follow me. And for a tax collector go, who are you pointing to? Who are you asking to follow me? Because tax collectors at this time, um, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, but being a tax collector at this time was probably one of the most hated professions. Now, does anybody know anybody who works for the IRS? No? Okay. I would imagine that there's some tension around that, but you're really not mad at that guy, right? Like, unless he did your personal audit, the idea of an IRS agent is off there, and the IRS agent gets uh, a wage. They don't get more money based on how much money they take from you. So tax agents at this time were more like toll agents in some ways. They would sit at the border between places, and when you would come along, they would charge you for what it was to cross, and then if you had goods, they would charge you with what it was for your goods across. And here's the scandalous, in Illinois we have a toll authority that's giantly corrupt, that's why most of our mayors end up, or governors end up in jail, but at least that's a set amount too. But what happened in the ancient Near East is to get the toll contract, you would say to the local area leader, which is sort of free people at this time in Israel, I'll take the toll contract and I'll pay you $10,000. But what do you gotta do next when you're collecting your toll? Get up to $10,000. No, but that's not true. If you get up to $10,000, all you did was pay the guy who gave you the right to collect the toll. So now you've got to collect enough money for you to live. And since all these were upstanding people, they only collected just enough to live a life of poverty. <laughs> Not so. Uh, so they would collect more and more money and adjust the rates and take more and more and, and sort of move this line on what was going on there. But not only that, this is, uh, they have cameras at toll authority places now, which is how they catch people uh, who didn't pay the toll. And in Illinois, you normally got like 10 before they called you, which was funny. It's like, I always care about 50 cents. Um, but what they had there with them was soldiers. So if you don't want to pay the toll, the Roman centurion is there as well. So if there was a cop next to the toll booth, most people would probably pay the toll booth. They're working the toll booth in the Illinois highway system. But such is the case, it's just a camera. In this system, you don't want to pay the toll and just go through doesn't work out well for you. And so tax collectors in this way are not very popular people. I always thought one of the most cruel parts of moving to Linwood Springs was at the time they only had one parking attendant. It's like, what a horrible thing. You're the only person who writes those tickets in town. Nobody knows it's not somebody else. We lived downtown at the time, so we'd see her often, and I was like, that's so mean. She writes all the tickets. You got a parking ticket, we know who did it. Now there's three, I think, which is a gracious thing to have done, because you don't want that job. So the tax collector would have been more like that, but even worse in the sense because Levi, Matthew, is a Jew. So he's not just the guy who collects the taxes for the empire, who's the enemy, who's sort of ruling over you. He's one of your own people that sided with the enemy and is making your life harder through what he takes from you when you pass from place to place. 
So needless to say, the tax collector is not a very popular person in the world, this ancient world, and they're extreme and prone to abuse. They have this way in which they collect more and more. They live wealthy lives. If you remember, uh, Zacchaeus says, I'll give away half of what I've taken. And all this, what he is called later in the gospel, is that, is that they seem to have a, a lot of wealth through their system of abuse and corruption. And what happens in these spots is I think you can begin to, to hate and distrust yourself in that. So Levi is not welcome at the temple. He can no longer be a faithful Jew. They says Levi is not welcome in the world. Levi's friends, as he throws this party later, are other tax collectors and, in Luke's famous phrase, sinners. You pile a lot of stuff into that box. Uh, one of the um, Chris's Bible translation when we read this at House Church this week said tax collectors and scum, um, which is uh, an extrapolation, but also is helpful to think of who Jesus has gathered at this moment. And so Levi is this person who lives this alienated life, and he's sitting at his tax collector booth. And one way Jesus walks by, and Jesus at this time it seems to be gaining reputation in this area. Now some scholars think Levi might have witnessed, gone to one of these Jesus events and seen something others don't, I think, deal with what the text gives us, which is, we don't know, Levi was there collecting taxes. But it would not have been unforeseen that he would have known who Jesus was at this time through what he was doing in the region. <laughs> and so when Jesus comes upon him and he says, follow me, if you're one of the fishermen, not the best career in the world, but certainly not the worst in the ancient Near East, and you're like, Jesus is cool. He calls people who are left behind. He calls a tax collector, and you're like, okay, Jesus is not cool anymore. He's gone a bit too far. This would have been except for all of the insiders and outsiders. And the challenge, it's hard. The challenge, I spent a lot of time this week thinking about how to express this in the modern world. Um, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Now, sinners is easy. Um, and Partially in the modern Christian world, we have taken Paul's letters to call us all sinners, right? So we all fall short. We're all, um, and I think what Matthew is using the term for sinners, or Luke is notorious sinners, people you knew as sinners from what they did for work. And so you could factor in um, in our world, the taboos seem to have fallen a lot, but certainly somebody who's a prostitute. Um, although that comes from a vulnerable place today in many different ways. And so I was trying to think on the professionalized thing. Who's the tax collector? IRS agent, too, too soft. And I've never been one. Um, I grew up in a very soft form of Presbyterianism in which you would never take offense to anything. So that's been, other pastors have said my spiritual gift, in some senses, if I sit down to you and you say, hey, well, here's all the things, the horrible things I've done. I'm not likely to get offended or worried or that. I just sort of roll with it and go. You know, there's that favorite prayer I share often is that we want our sins to be interesting, but they're not. Um, and that's the way I can kind of roll with these things. But I think the, the one time I was caught off guard, I went to uh, an event the library was hosting here called Pints and Pizza, uh, similar to maybe this party that Jesus goes to, uh, and books. It wasn't just pints and pizza. There were books. We were supposed to discuss books. And the girl sits down next to me is dressed in sort of a nurse's outfit. And I said, oh, okay, what do you do? And she said, I work for Planned Parenthood. And I was like, 
That's weird, because I would never expect somebody to say that out loud that easily in public. Um, so I was a little thrown off. That was one of the few and only times. But I think for some people, thinking of the tax collector is thinking of Jesus calling somebody who works for Planned Parenthood, and then he goes to a party of a bunch of people who work for Planned Parenthood. But because I never like to pick on half of the political spectrum, I think we could do, uh, for the other side, uh, an ice worker. Jesus calls an immigration service employee who's, who's particularly involved in tearing families apart in whatever region of the world you think it is. And then that guy, and we'll get into what happens to Levi, but the party he goes to is a bunch of other people like that who have shown no repentance, have shown no qualms about what they do. And, and, and to be clear, I think part of the challenge here is to be equally scandalized by both those categories. I'm not sure that you should be equally offended, or offense is the right term, but to be scandalized is the way in which this gospel becomes, the gospels and what's preserved for us in the New and Old Testament becomes too domestic for us. I think it's proper for us to feel the scandalization of what Jesus does, because if we don't, then it doesn't mean a lot to us that Jesus gathers people like this. It's just like a bump in the story. Jesus is going around, he calls this person, oh, Jesus is weird, he does crazy stuff, isn't that great? Did you sit with what this meant for Jesus to call somebody like this? Who is that person in your world? Who is the person that if group of people, the organization of people, that if Jesus started calling them, you would go, is it necessary that Jesus eat with these people? Is it necessary that Jesus call these people? And the call that Jesus says, very simple call, uh, very effective evangelist he is, is follow me. And what we know about the ancient Near East is to follow somebody like Jesus is to follow a rabbi, and to follow a rabbi is to want to be like them and do everything they do. One of the pastors I like listening to, I figure you guys listen to one sermon a week, so I try to listen to one sermon a week from someplace else in the world. Not always the same person. Sometimes, um, you guys know what a hate read is? Like you read this article just to find out how much you hate reading that article. Some sermons I listen to just to press myself and to learn something from somebody I wouldn't normally choose to listen to. Some. This is too much confession now. Um, anyways, they're all great and wonderful, and I pray for them every week. Uh, uh, point being is, he likes to say that, that to become what Jesus is asking Levi to do here is to apprentice under him. Follow me isn't just sort of walk with me if a rabbi says it to you. It's come see how I live, come see how I pray, come see how I fast, come see how I walk in the world, who I hang out with and what I do so that the goal of all that is that you might be able to be like this rabbi when this rabbi dies or retires, more likely dies. Um, that this is the training that Levi agrees to when he gets up. And so this is interesting because Jesus hasn't tried to make Levi feel bad about what he's done. Now, there's a later meal that this was going to bleed into the sermon I know at some point, but I thought it'd be at the end. There's a later meal in Luke. Um, Jesus, there's a biblical scholar who says in Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, leaving a meal, or at a meal. Jesus eats and hangs out around people a lot in Luke eating. Meals play a pivotal part in the book of Luke. And one of the most pivotal meals, I think, as we sort of look out, is the meal at the end of the prodigal son story. Is that this meal is, is made, and the one son doesn't want to enter into the, the, sorry, I should explain a little bit of the story. 
One son says, give me your wealth, father. Uh, and he says, okay, here's the wealth. He goes off and spends it on uh, wild living, which would mean prostitution, gambling, possibly murder. Lots of horrible things in the world. He runs out, he's feeding pigs, and he says, I bet if I go home, my dad will at least give me a lifestyle better than feeding pigs. So he returns to his home. Uh, and the father says, it's so great you returned. I'll slaughter the fattened calf, we'll have a feast. The son who's remained and done everything that the father has commanded him to says, this isn't cool. Um, and he stays outside the party. The point I want to make about this in what Jesus does in talking to Levi, somebody alienated from themselves, is that when the first son says, give me the money to go waste it on prostitutes and wild living and all this stuff, the father just says, okay, here you go. When the other son won't enter into the party that God has thrown for this one who is lost and is now found, the father leaves the house and pleads for him to come back in. The challenge I think the Gospel of Luke is telling us about who Jesus gathers and who Jesus calls around him is that if you are living a life of a tax collector, of a prostitute, of a reputable sinner, you know what you need. If you think you're obeying the law, you're doing everything perfectly right, that things are going your way, you cannot enter into the joy of what was lost and is found, and that, because the Father goes out and pleads with you, is a more dangerous position to be in. One, the person who taught me to read that parable that way, is the best cure for a sinful life is a sinful life. But the best cure for your self-righteousness, nobody knows. Doesn't seem to be preserved for us. I guess that it would be Paul being blinded on your horse in the middle of nowhere and meeting Jesus absolutely personally might be the best cure for that. Which is a lot more than just hearing the words. So anyways, then Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. This detachment is amazing. Jesus, Levi gets up, and the, the Greek word is the same one in the story before this, where the guy gets up from his mat when Jesus heals him and forgives his sins. And the context here of sins being forgiven with the get up line, you can read a lot into that with Matthew gets up. He participates in this thing. Incidentally, it's also used at the end of Luke to talk about a resurrection. Jesus gets up. This is the same one that when uh, Jesus is walking on the road with the disciples from Emmaus, and he says that the Son of Man will rise. Same Greek word. So, Levi, who might as well have been dead in his trespasses, is told to get up, or he gets up on his own. And he leaves everything and follows him. Similar to what happened with the fishermen at the beginning of this chapter, the chapter before this, is they leave their nets and follow Jesus. You might think, like, well, he got up from his desk, he went up and he followed Jesus, and, and then he went back and cleaned up his desk and said, oh, I forgot my laptop, Jesus, I might need that later, and my cell phone and this, that, and the other. But if you're following the way the book of Luke is going, he gets up and leaves everything. He's not planning on coming back to this place and this thing. He gets up and he follows Jesus. He takes on the path of discipleship. There's a, a longer quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the back of your bulletin, but the part begins in the second paragraph that I always find amazing, is when Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a person, he bids him to come and die. It may be like the, 
of a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man, as it's called. Levi receives the same call that we do, and that you are called out. When Christ calls you to follow you, he calls you to come and die. He leaves everything behind. Then, Levi threw a great banquet. This is where things get tricky. Levi invites all his friends to come and meet Jesus. And the language here is Jesus is the, is the um, honored guest at this banquet. He throws a great chance for everybody to come and meet the radical life change he's made. But the problem is, as we talk about, who are Levi's friends? Well, no, good, self-righteous Jew would be friends with Levi. No Pharisee would hang out with Levi. No um, temple-practicing, worshiping peace person would come and have a meal with Levi. And more incidental, the, 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 what is sort of being revealed here is how Jesus violates the patterns of table fellowship. So in the ancient Near East, to share a meal with somebody is to share almost a spiritual partnership. There's more going on here than just we had him over for dinner. To share a meal is to become in a relationship with a person in an intimate kind of way. Part of this is because they, the, the sacredness of the household with, with Jewish laws and this, that, and the other is it becomes almost like a mini altar inside this thing. And so um, he enters in, it's not so much that just he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. I think it's an unfair interpretation of the Pharisees that they too wouldn't want these people to repent and change their lives. They would do it from a distance. So if you've ever gone to a concert, almost like ever, there's somebody with a bullhorn out there just yelling at people to repent because they will burn for seeing. And oddly, I've seen it at like a Chris Tomlin concert where it's like, Chris Tomlin seems like an odd target for something like that, but okay. Um, that they would do it from a distance. They would want to talk to these people. Whereas Jesus enters into the house and eats with them. And he doesn't check feel sorry cards at the door. He just goes to the meal there. This past, a week ago, Lori recommended to me the book, The Gospel Comes with the House Key, which is this radical book about Christian hospitality and how it takes place in the world. And it's written by this woman, Rosario Butterfield, who's had a very interesting life. Um, but she was at one point a, um, uh, a lesbian professor at Syracuse, and now she's a Christian homeschooling mom and living her life the way it is. But she says of her own hospitality practices, which is, puts mine to shame, let's say. She's very extreme in hospitality. People will ask her, they say, Rosario, I would love to do what you do and have people to my house, but what will people think? And am I sanctioning their lifestyle by inviting them in? And is it good for me to just open my doors to anybody who walk in? Some of my neighbors do horrible things. Some of my friends do horrible things. Should I really be caught dining with them? Which this story would help with. But I love the phrase that she says to them, is that you are called to love the sinner and hate your sin. And thinking about her, her previous lifestyle and her biography, is she's been one who's been subject to the phrase, love the sinner but hate their sin, right? That's the way we often use that phrase, is we're called to love the sinner and hate their sin. But that's really ineffective, and it's also not really loving the sinner. 
Um, because sin has this way of becoming of our identity when we're not in the light, that expecting them to be able to separate that is not wise. What she says to her friends who ask this question is it's simple. You're called to love that sinner and hate your own sin. And Kelly and I talked about this in the two ways you can interpret that. One is the sin and thinking that it's for you to sort out who can eat at your dinner table. If Jesus became flesh and ate with all of us, and also tax collectors and notorious sinners. That could be a sin. But I think knowing Rosario's sort of church world is that she believes in this sort of mortification of sin, is that you have to hate your own sin as it is. If you think that you have your house in order enough that somebody who does something you disagree with is enough of a problem because you're in that good of shape, she says, Ed, perhaps you should rethink that. Perhaps there's more sin in your life you need to hate and root out as well. So to practice this kind of hospitality is to become a person who loves sinners and can see themselves in a way that makes them hate their own sin. Perhaps the sin of not being able to have an open table with outsiders, knowing Christ who descends from the Father and becomes a slave for us and for our salvation, but also the sins that live in our own lives. So back to the party. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners is the question the Pharisees have to ask. And I want to say that uh, a melodrama, that if you were at a melodrama and for some reason it's based off of the New Testament um, and not the West, and people say the Pharisees, what would everybody do? Ooh, yes, this, that, and the other. But it's not actually a fair thing for us to really be doing because at this time, the Pharisees are more likely the good guys than the bad guys. And I always joke to people who are like, oh, Pharisees are so evil. I, I say, do you have a pastor? And they're like, yeah, I have a pastor. And I'm like, that would, he's a Pharisee. Nobody hires a pastor who's not a Pharisee uh, in the sense of trying to live up to the law, protect boundaries, to be this sort of person. And that's not evil in and of itself. The Pharisees are not evil in and of themselves. It's the way that they turn with the law the way they lay that upon other people, the way that the law becomes an extraction on other people, that is problematic. And so uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, whose commentary I like on Matthew, he calls the Pharisees the serious. They're the serious Bible people. They're the serious moral-like people. And the phrase he uses for them is that they are so healthy and clean, it's almost off-putting. It's almost disgusting. Now, for me, um, how far do I want to go with that? I think you could think in your own life of where this takes root in that way. Is that somebody has taken the mantle upon themselves, is as a Christian, I am the serious. And the order that flows out of them is so organized and so jointed and so rule based that it almost is off putting in and of itself. And it's hard to break into that space and to have relationship there. And so they ask Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you share this intimacy with them? Why do you go into this spot with them? And Jesus answers them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. When you relate to the Syrians, there's a sense of health among them that there's no doctor needed. In the early church, one of their favorite phrases for Jesus that we've lost is Christ is the doctor of our souls. He's the great doctor, the physician of our souls. And through that, he meets those who are sick. He's not here to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And Jesus, to be clear, is one who can go into the places of death and destruction and disease and leprosy and all that, and the holiness that radiates out from him because of his relationship with the Father is one that purifies that relationship outward rather than that is disinfected inward. Jesus doesn't go with, um, Jesus goes as a purifying agent into these places, not as one who's vulnerable to corruption himself. This is what I think is interesting about holiness. Is Holiness, I think, can be defined in a missional way, which is to say that to work with prostitutes, you need to be somebody who doesn't hire prostitutes. To work among alcoholics, you might need to give up a drink yourself. To work among those who struggle with money and consumerism and this, that, and the other, it would not be wise to buy stuff that makes them fall into that lust and trap even further. To deal with those addicted to social media, it would not be great to say, hey, did you see my Instagram post yesterday? Holiness isn't always just for ourselves, but it enables us to go into spaces where we don't feel the risk the same way. Jesus, being God, can eat with tax collectors and sinners. He can go into places where he might be um, at risk. Lepers would make a person ritual unclean in the ancient Near East. And because of who he is, who he knows, as his God's holiness, is it actually bleeds out to him and makes that space pure. That's unique to Jesus. But I think through God's relationship and the outpouring of the Spirit towards us, it's possible for us. It's not always wise for you to say, I can just go to wherever I want. You have to know yourself. You have to know your weaknesses. You are not Jesus Christ. But it's possible for you, through prayer and through knowledge of God and through practicing holiness, to be able to go in places that you don't think you might have been able to go into because I might get unclean. Put this in a frayed language, which is less than helpful, but you might get cooties to some degree, is to say that you can actually go as someone who's immune to that into those spaces, because as one who's called and claimed by God, the power has faded there. But I think it's time for us to end. <laughs> it's a lot in the sermon. I'm trying to sum up my last. Um, there's. What Jesus has been doing so far in Luke's gospel is restoring people to themselves for their illnesses, restoring people to community, because being some of these people means they're abstracted from community, particularly temple, church, and Jesus it was restoring people to God. Jesus is this one using these miracles and these callings to restore people to relationship. Levi, when he leaves behind tax collecting, actually gains a community. 
He gave the whole world he was cut off to because he was a tax collector. Jesus in the process of restoration here. Jesus in the, is in the process of being with us. And that with phrase, I think, is, is, is worth thinking about for a long time. He made space to be with us. But I think the, the last thing I want to talk about is this short passage from Romans, which it says in memory, is I hope you've gone resentful of God's kindness because it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Do we believe that? Part of Jesus' table fellowship with these people can fall into the category of it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not that Jesus is not asking for repentance from these people. That Jesus wouldn't ask them to change too, like Levi, and leave their things behind and move into another place. But there's something about the character of God, particularly revealed to us in Romans and in Jesus Christ, that perhaps it is kindness too that can lead to repentance. And it's God's kindness to us too as well. One of the, the great controversies of the church is that it's here. Celsius, who is one of the first people to write against Christians in the history of the church, says, these people will take on anyone. What the heck is wrong with them? Um, to be a philosophy, which is one of the things Christianity was early on confused with, although not entirely confused by what they meant by philosophy. To be a philosophy, you want people who are not evil. The Christians seem to take on just about anyone. This is a bad philosophy. And what Origen, uh, we don't have Celsius' writing, so we only have Origen excerpting Celsius. But what Origen writes back is that we bring them in so that they can be healed. For us in our community, it's not that we come to call the righteous, but we come to call sinners to repent. The church is called to holiness. The church is called to guard its boundaries and to have a full life. That is certainly true. But the church is also called to take people along the way with them. You don't get in the door by living the life that abstains from evil. You get in the door because you want to leave the life that deals with evil. You get in the door because you leave behind. When the phrase of Luke Gospels that you hear the call follow you, and you get up, and you leave everything, and you follow him. Let us pray. God, we thank you for taking the form of a Savior that knew how to have a good time. We thank you for taking the form of a Savior who comes to us in kindness, that leads us to repentance. God, for us today, it is to see from Isaiah that passage we read of the gathering of all people together for the healing that you provide. May we be people who hear, who have been reminded of the call to follow you. And may we be people who can get up and leave everything and follow. And from there, host with people we know around us parties so that they can meet you too.
knowing that what you have done for us is too good not to be shared. Help us witness to this life. Help us witness to your love. Help us witness to your holiness. At the table and in the world. In the holy name. Amen.